invite you to turn this morning to Song of Solomon, chapter 8. You find the prophecy of Isaiah, and work back from there. You'll find Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Setting aside our study in Hebrews as we continue in looking at Song of Solomon for communion, but we are coming to the final, final message in this book. And so it has, has been some time that we've been here every time coming to communion, or at least regularly when we come to communion, taking a portion of Song of Solomon for our text, and we have made our way through the entirety of the book. It's not all that long, but when you only preach it about ten times a year, it can take you over three years to, to get through it all. So we're coming to the end today. I trust that as we have walked through these, these portions, that that is the one that you have seen, the Lamb of God. Uh, we've emphasized this over and over again. It is our desire that you see Christ. Of course, that is the chief objective of the Scriptures, to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not about telling you how wonderful you are. It's not about giving you indication of all the great things you can accomplish. It's about what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished. And yes, by His Spirit, He enables us to do things. By His Spirit, He enables us to serve. He enables us to die to sin and live on to righteousness. He enables us to do things that prior to our conversion we could not do, nor even desired to do, because there was no beauty in Him that we should desire Him. But there has been a change. But the whole book, the whole of God's Word is about Christ. And that is the same as we have come to this book. And I was reminded again in preparation of just how many come to this and all they can see is the carnal. And I pity them. I pity their souls if all they can see here is a man and a woman and the various words and language of human relationship here because that is not its primary intent. So, let us read the Word of God from where we will, just where we're picking up. It's verse 11. We got as far as verse 10. We read verse 11 through to the end. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Belhaman. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Every one for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver my vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof two hundred. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. Amen. God bless His Word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to have the living Word of God before us, and we're thankful that from Genesis through Revelation, we could write over every page, Behold the Lamb of God. And we pray that we might ever have an appetite for Christ, and our vision would, be, would all be for Him. Yes, we have to understand our sinful nature. We have to recognize all that Thou dost require of man, but, but our chief and our most joyful 
experience is to see Christ. It is looking onto Him. It is beholding Him. And we pray that as we come to a close in this book that has edified and challenged and encouraged us, every time we have come to communion, when we have looked at it, it's been a blessing. We pray it might be a blessing today. So come to us, O God. Encourage our hearts. Grant, Father in heaven, that we might rejoice in all that Christ has done and leave this place in the joy and victory of the finished work of Christ and know that resting upon our souls. Oh, we have an enemy. He tries to discourage. We have an enemy. He tries to quell the joy we have in Christ. May he be banished from our hearts and from every aspect of our worship today. May our eyes be easily lifted onto the cross. So hear us, be with us, fill us with thy spirit. And remember, even those that are preaching the word from this church today, remember Reverend Wagner, remember our brother Logan Elder, we pray bless them as they minister elsewhere. Grant you'll encourage the saints across this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've said, we come to the end of this poetic book, beloved, and I hope with a certain amount of sadness as we have uh, traversed through the verses and endeavored to understand what they say to us. As I have emphasized the personal work of Christ and the life of the church through this book, it's not to say that there is not application to relationships. I say that just as a, as a reminder that every time we look at the relationship between Christ and His church, we are we're being pointed to something that ought to be lived out in our lives as well. Ephesians chapter 5 lays out, I've said it many times, I say it again, it is in seeing Christ's love for His church that husbands understand their calling. It is seeing the place of the church before Christ that wives understand their calling as well, at least in part, in a big part we might say. The passage even before us, Song of Solomon chapter 8, reminds us of crucial features of, of our marriages as well. We there ought to be, for example, in verse 5, when she is looked upon, who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved, that kind of contentment ought to be seen in marriage, where there's a resting. Of course, speaking here of the, the bride resting on her beloved, but, but both parties in one sense. Wives should be able to rest upon their husbands, rest upon their leadership, rest in their walk with God, rest knowing that they're guiding with the fear of God in their hearts. And the bride then has a rest. There's a rest to the soul. Because it's not, it's not just them doing what they want. They are living under the command and authority of another. So it gives, us, gives their wives that sense of contentment when they can lean upon us like this. And the commitment of, of verse 6 and 7 when it speaks here of love being as strong as death and so on and so forth. This, this is... This is language of commitment. This is where parties know that there are no pre-established exit doors. We're not trying to run from each other. We're not looking for outs, so we, we are completely committed. That's why marriage isn't just a party. It calls upon us to make vows before God and men. Those vows are meant to bring a sense of the fear of God in our hearts, should we? Step aside from them. Should we come to a point where we begin to say to ourselves, I don't want to be committed anymore and, and treat it like some kind of job where we move from one to the other, where there seems to be a better offer on the table? That is not it. 
So there's, there's much application, but as I have endeavored, as we've walked through these pages, it is not to primarily focus on that. It is to see our Lord Jesus Christ. And last time we saw verse 8, where she speaks, it speaks here of one that has, has found favor. No, it's not, not verse 8. Where is it? Verse 10, pardon me. When she speaks as one, she says, I was, what, Then was I in his eyes as one that found favor. And if you have a margin, you will see that another translation given to that word favor could be peace. It's one of those occasions where you wonder, why not just put the word in? Because it's shalom. It's the word we understand as being peace, although I understand the emphasis of the word here is that favor, that benediction that shalom carries with it as well. But you find here then this, this, this bride who has found peace. We know that she is referred to as the Shulamite in chapter 6, verse 13. Her name therefore meaning the peaceful. And Solomon's name also meaning peace. We have here, even in this understanding, looking at verse 10, as her being one that found favor, finding peace, you have this, this allegorical emphasis that is, that is intended through the book. That the way the bride, who's called peaceful, is to find her peace is by, by and through her relationship to the one who is, whose name is peace, Solomon. The, the son of David. And it's through our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, that, that we find peace. We obtain peace through Christ. And only through Christ. And that really, in one sense, weaves together the entire book. This relationship between the bride and the bridegroom, Solomon and the Shulamite, points to Christ and His church, and their relationship is one that brings peace, but it's all upon the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings peace through the blood of His cross. And as we come to the final message of our excursion through this book, we're considering it under the title, The Church Busy and Waiting. The Church Busy and Waiting. And note with me, first of all, that she is busy because of the claim of Christ over her. She is busy because of the claim of Christ over her. Look at verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Belhamon. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Everyone for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof two hundred. There is, firstly here, Christ's ownership. Verse 11, Solomon had a vineyard at Belhaman. Now, we've referred to the vineyard as depicting the church on various occasions, and we'll do so here in just a moment. But Belhaman is said to have been a pagan weather god. It gave the idea of vegetation uh, bearing its fruit, the fertility of vegetation, he was the god then that was worshipped in relation to that. At least that's what some believe. We don't know where this place was, if it even was a place. Solomon had a vineyard at Belhaman, what that location was, whether it's, again, it's just language to express a certain truth. But the idea is that it's the world. The vineyard is here in the world. And Solomon has a vineyard at this particular location. We know he had many vineyards. If we were to take the time to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're told 
that Solomon had planted different vineyards and gardens and orchards and so on. But here's one of them. Here is one of them. And we're told that it is leased out to a plurality of keepers, they are called, in verse 11. He let out, he leased the vineyard onto keepers, the plurality of keepers, given an indication of the size. It's far too big for one man to deal with this vineyard. You have to have a plurality of men involved. And each one then owes to Solomon a thousand pieces of silver. He gets to provide for his family with the fruit of the vineyard, but he owes to Solomon for that privilege a thousand pieces of silver. So this, this, this language then is one of ownership. Solomon had a vineyard at Belhaman. He let out the vineyard onto keepers. Every one for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. And language points us to the, the existence of the church within this world. Christ has. He has a vineyard. And it's expansive. And it takes a plurality of individuals to be involved in the keeping of that vineyard. Men who are called to the work of God. Men who minister to the church and in the church for the benefit and good of the church. That's the depiction that we see in this language. But Christ is the owner of it all. He is the one in authority. And this is why in all our governing of the church, we express Christ as the head of the church. We're not Anglican. We don't put a human sovereign at the head of our church for a reason. It doesn't express the truth of Christ being the head of the church. Now, we have brethren in the Anglican church, and we're indebted to many Anglican brethren. And if we were to dismiss all that has been ha happened and occurred through the Anglican church, we would dismiss a huge portion of God's advancing of His church in the West. Uh, whatever you cared, you could name a whole host of, of people from Whitfield to J.C. Ryle. God has worked and used them and still uses them to this day. But as far as our church government is concerned, we reject the structure that they represent. Christ has a vineyard. He is a sovereign over it all. And He is many, many that labor in that vineyard for the good of the vineyard. Christ's ownership then is clearly stated here, but also there is the church's opportunity. Verse 12, My vineyard which is mine is before me. These words are debated in relation to who's actually speaking, which is a constant battle within this book different opinions as to who actually is speaking. And so some say, see here, uh, the, you know, the, the Solomon or the, the, uh, the bridegroom being the one speaking here, my vineyard which is mine is before me. And then comes in the bride's language, thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand. But, but I'm inclined to see the entire verse as her expression here. She speaks of having her own vineyard, as it were, her place a place where she labors, a place that is her responsibility. I, I, it may be, and I'm not going to debate it, it may be that this is, uh, as it were, the language of Christ laying claim to the vineyard again and then her responding to it. But, but it, whatever the case is, it, it doesn't really change the application of, of what the text is underscoring for us. The point here in this verse is showing the opportunity the church has to serve her Lord. She expresses it in this language, that she has a vineyard which is hers. But what does she do with it? 
Well, well, she labors in it as she, as, as she lays claim to it, a little portion of it that says, this is mine. What does she do? She says, thou, O Saul, must have a thousand. A thousand what? He must have the same thousand pieces of silver. He must, and, and she words it in a way, and she desires it in a way where she longs to give it. It is her desire, is her delight to give to him what is due to him. So what you're seeing here is her expression of, of longing to be able to give to Solomon, as it is here, or the church giving to Christ what is due his name for his glory. She doesn't want to hold back. She doesn't want to keep it for herself. I imagine some of the keepers referred to in verse 11 might have begrudged paying the lease, you know, especially if it's a, you know, a bad harvest. They're not going to enjoy that if you look at it in the temporal realm. But she's looking forward to it. She's desirous to give. She, she wants, oh, Solomon must have a thousand. I want to give to him what he is due. This she expresses because she loves him. This she expresses because she wants to show that love and affection. You look at the language and you see a thousand. What does it mean by a thousand? If you, if you go through Scripture, you will find that the, the number 1,000, and I know some brethren are going to be in their minds, no, I don't believe that. But if you go through the Scripture, you'll find the number 1,000 used regularly as a large indefinite number. All right, It's not meant to be specific. I know we run through Revelation 20, and it speaks there of a thousand years and brothers want to, to, to run with that and say, it's, it's 1,000 years. It's, it's exactly 1,000 years. And that's your, you have your right to take that interpretation. That's fine. But when Scripture speaks of him being a God to a 1,000 generations, is it specifically? Is that how we understand it? Just narrowly? It's, it's 1,000 generations? Or is it a large, indefinite number to signify the ongoing faithfulness of God from one generation to another? When it refers to the Lord owning a cattle on a thousand hills, is it just one thousand hills? Of course not. He owns it all. It's a large, indefinite number. You can't, it's, not, it's not quantifying. You can't give a specific number. You can't specify the number of generations. You can't specify the number of hills. So you use, the Scripture uses this large number to indicate its largeness, but it's indefinite. We don't know precisely what it is. I would say the same applies in Revelation 20, though I'll not go any further there. She is looking at it in that way. It's not just a thousand. It's, it's whatever he is owed. Whatever he is owed. The, that which is signified here is a thousand pieces of silver. He, he, he is due what he is owed. And it's large. It is large. But she is not unwilling to give that. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand. You must have it. You're due. You're due all the glory that I can offer. The church then has an opportunity as she labors within her field of service, a place that you can say, here's where I labor. Here's my calling. Here's the place where God has put me. You can call it your vineyard, whatever you want it to call it. That's where God has put you. And the purpose for you being there is to give to Solomon a thousand. It is to give all the glory due to your God. You're not placed on the earth for your own little 
kingdom and the benefit of your own life merely. You're not here to bring joy and gladness to yourself. If you're doing that, you are missing the mark on the calling of God in your life. Man's chief end is to glorify God. That's his chief end. His chief end. How many of us waste our time and our energy and our gifts and talents and opportunities that God has given to to satisfy ourselves? We're here for self. We prioritize self. And our lives across the board can express this in all sorts of ways. But the true delight of the church is to give, to give to Christ what he is due. What is he due? What is he due in your life? Oh, this is not, this is not her buying her salvation. That's not the case. She's not buying her salvation. She's not trying to buy fever. We have underscored that repeatedly through this book. She is, she is not one who can save herself. When she says, I am black but comely, it is only by the grace of Christ in her. There's nothing in this book that exalts man. It doesn't exalt ourselves. It's all about the exaltation of Christ's work in us and through us. All of us, all of us, we are are unable to satisfy what, what God demands but, but we in turn then give to him what he is due. And it goes on then in verse 12, those that keep the fruit thereof, 200. So you have a different ideas here, but I, I think the large majority of faithful interpreters see this then as the, the labor worthy of his hire. Those that labor in the vineyard, those that labor for, for Christ, they're worthy of their their own um, sustenance from the church as well. They labor in the vineyard. You might put it this way. Men that labor for the church with the approval of the church can be supported by the church. This is another way that the church shows her love for Christ and their appreciation for those that preach the Word. Again, you look at the numbers. If you start saying, well, you know, Solomon's a thousand, they're two hundred, and you start looking at it that way as a fifth of it, and so on. You start, it's, it's not the point. It's not the point. It's just that the portion is worthy to be given to those that labor for Christ. There's the idea of the labor being worthy of his hire is underlined in Leviticus 19.13, Deuteronomy 24.15, Matthew 10, verse 10, Luke 10, 7, 1 Timothy 5.18. But the point is, make sure the king gets his portion. Make sure the king gets that which he is due. And so the people of God are given this opportunity. You're living it right now. You're living it today. This very day is a day of opportunity. You live in the day of grace, and it is an opportunity for you to show how you want to bring glory to Christ. What He means to you and how you can express that gratitude. But secondly, busy because of the call of Christ upon the church. 
There's this busyness this which we have to be about because of the call of Christ upon us. Verse 13, Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. The words, the language, the grammar, I should say in verse 13 begins, thou is in the feminine, so there is the words of the beloved speaking here, speaking to her. And these are the last words, the last words of the beloved, verse 13. Verse 14, the expression of the church. It's the bride speaking there in the last verse. So here's the last words, the last words that that we might say Christ is saying to His bride. And what is He saying? Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to Thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Note here a number of things. First, her work. Her work. Thou that dwellest in the gardens. Thou that dwellest in the gardens. What does He mean? She dwells in the gardens. Well, we've noted over and over again that the garden is symbolic, just like the vineyard, symbolic of the church. It's the life of the church. It's the church on earth. Her existing, endeavoring to bring forth fruit to the glory of God, to live a fruitful life for His glory. Here, it is plural, thou that dwellest in the gardens. And so, this is the first time I think we've come across it in the plural. Every other time it's been in the singular, so we, we meditate on that with gardens, the church, what, what's the plural of gardens? Well, it's the church, just that's plural expression. <laughs> because the church doesn't have one unique expression in the world, does it? It's divided by, by geography and, and by chronology, time. I mean, it, it's, it can't always be. We're not sitting here with the Apostle Paul and Peter sitting in our midst. We are divided in that sense. There's a, there, we're here on the earth. They, they're in their glorified state. And so there's a sense in which the church is, is divided up. Now, I know people, they're funny about the use of the word church. And they, they like to always remind you that ecclesia means people not building, right? You know, it's people not building. I get it. I agree. Of course it is. It's not, it's not a building, it's not bricks and mortar. It's not material stuff that is the church. But, but it's, it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. Now, how the Scripture uses the word church allows us to understand why at times there is this, this plural understanding of the word. Why we can refer to it as gardens and not a garden. Yes, there's one church in one sense. But there's another sense in which there's a plurality. James Bannerman notes five different ways in which the church is understood. Ecclesia. And I'll just run through these quickly with you. The church, first of all, in its invisible form. All right? We're thinking about the church in its invisible form. It is what we might all elsewhere term the, the elect, the believers that inhabit both heaven and earth and the whole expanse of eternity. This, this invisible body for whom Christ died. This is the church. Bannerman says the word church signifies the whole body of the faithful whether in heaven or on earth, who have been or shall be spiritually united to Christ as their Savior, the church. And he points us to Ephesians 5. Christ gave himself for the church. 
And it doesn't matter then whether time or place or what you're dealing with, they're all lumped in there. The invisible form. There's also the visible form. Although there is an invisible form of the church, there's also a visible public manifestation of the church throughout the world. Again, Bannerman says the term church is made use of in Scripture to denote the whole body throughout the world of those that outwardly profess the faith of Christ. And he turns your attention to 1 Corinthians 12, 28. The church, wherever you are in the world, you have this understanding of the church is visible. It has a location. It's in here on the earth, an outward expression of it. You say, there's, there's the church. There's also, however, then, the local form. This is not just the fact that there's the church visible on the earth, but the local form of the church, where you see it in various areas. The church in a particular area. Again, Bannerman, the term church is frequently employed in Scripture to denote the body of believers in any particular place associated together in the worship of God. Here he points to Acts 14.23. Then there's the church in its connected form. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we talk about the Free Presbyterian Church of North America, we're recognizing a certain group of churches that are connected together. Or you, you, talk, you talk about other denominations, Presbyterian Church of America, whatever it might be. And the term, again, it, it, it has, you're allowed to use it in that way. It's not wrong for associated brethren to say we're part of this church, even though they're divided by location. We can say we're part of this church. Again, Bannerman, the word church is applied in the New Testament to a number of congregations associated together under a common government. He points to Acts 8 verse 1, verse 3. He also speaks of, uh, uses 1 Corinthians 14, 34, where Paul writes to the church of God. Well, earlier in, the church, in, in that letter, he writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And yet, Later in chapter 14, verse 34 says, Let your woman keep silence in the churches. That's the understanding of a, of a city the size of Corinth. There wasn't just one place or expression of the Corinthian church. You know, we didn't you know, just hop into our trucks and cars and, and drive a few miles across the city to get to church. We can do that then. But then, and in those days, they had to divide up so that people could actually get to church. And it wasn't possible for them then to go miles and miles and miles, so they, they, they had. But it's, it's the church at Corinth as he begins the letter, but it's in the churches as he expresses it in chapter 14. So the, the point is you have these, you can, yes, that's the church at Corinth or the church of North America or the church of whatever. And it's biblical to refer to it in that way. And then there's the church in its representative form where he says the word church is applied in the New Testament to the body of professing believers in any place as represented by the rulers and office bearers. And here he points to Matthew eighteen seventeen. tell it to the church. Speak to those in authority within the church, problems, issues that need to be dealt with in the church. But my point is this. Church can mean a number of things. And it's divided across time and space. And yet it's all, it's all the church, depending on how you look at it and reflect upon it. But there, there's a sense there's a plurality. I mean, it would be sad if we were laboring here in Greenville and we said, this is the only church in Greenville. 
the, all the believers in Greenville that are represented here this morning, that would be a grief to our souls. But there are all sorts of gatherings and assemblies of others who truly know Christ. And they are the church. Whatever their title or name above their door, however they identify themselves, they are the church. And they are another church. And we can speak of the churches in Greenville. There are churches in Greenville, as different as they may be at times. And here then you have this idea of gardens. Thou that dwellest in the gardens. He speaks to her as, as one that dwells in gardens. This is where she exists. And of course, this is what God intended from the beginning, isn't it? When, he, when he, didn't, he didn't make, if you go and read Genesis 2, He didn't make man in the garden. He put man in the garden to work. Outside and aware, I don't know exactly where it was. I don't know how far away God made Adam from where Eden was. But He didn't make him in Eden. He was outside. And then He puts Adam in the garden. Wonderful depiction of what happens in the new creation as well. Because before we're saved, we're not in the church really, in, 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 the, in, the, in the sense of the invisible. Now you may be physically in the church, and the church is a mixed multitude. We'll see that tonight in the text we're looking at this evening, God willing. The church is a mixed multitude of people. I look down in this congregation, I take you at your word for the most part that you're saved, and your testimony is legitimate. But you can fool me. And many do. They fool. Judas fooled. Had everyone fooled but Christ? It's, it's more than possible. It happens. It's real. But there's a sense in which when, when Christ is doing His work and He is saving souls, what's He doing there? He is taking men out of the world. Though they may be in a church, He takes them out of the world and He puts them in the garden, in the church, and He makes them a new creation. And all things pass away, all things become new, and his entire purpose for living is different. And he's placed in the garden. Why is he there in the garden? To tend and to keep it. To labor in it, just like you. In other words, when you were saved and placed in the garden, in the church, you were saved and placed in that garden to serve it, to tend it and to keep it. And so we could go through all the New Testament passages as well as old that call us to responsibility to other believers, loving one another, and all the rest of it, all the, all the one another's. You're placed in the garden, in the church, to serve the garden, to serve the church. If, if you don't love the church, you don't love Christ. It's impossible. You've decapitated the Son of God. You can't say, I hold to the head, and I don't care about the body. You can't do it. You cannot do it. A lot of people try to. They try to. They, they, they try to live a separate life. A, a life separate from the church. And they don't really love the church. Or care for it. Huge question mark. At least at, the, at best, there's gross ignorance. At worst, not saved. There has to be. This is what he does. He Thou that dwellest in the garden. You dwell in the garden. You should. Not, not just coming to church, but dwelling. Dwelling in it. Yes, dwelling in it. That's, that's, that's where I live. It's like Peter and John when they were arrested and released and it said that they went to their own company, which wasn't home to their wives. It was to the church. It was to the people of God. That was their company. These are my people. 
course they are. I'm joined to Christ. How could I be severed from these people? How could I? How could I not enjoy being with them? Even Friday night and seeing a few men prepared the potential of being sent out to serve the Lord. How could I not delight in that? I mean, I know graduations. <laughs> no one really loves or enjoys sitting through graduations unless you're the one being gradu- getting, having it conferred on you and so on. But, but, as a graduation of men who are preparing to launch out and serve the Lord, that's something to really rejoice in. Plus the fact our service was only an hour long, not three or four hours as most graduations can be. But it's different. It's different. Our relationship to, to the church versus the world is different. To one another. Let, let me tell you, child of God, cultivate a love for the church. Cultivate it by praying. Lord, help me to love your people. Help me. Help me to love what you shed your blood for. Thou that dwellest in the gardens. I want to see all the gardens flourish. I want to see all of them bear fruit. I want to see them all advance. This is her work. Christ puts his hand upon you, places you into the church, and you labor there. You don't live separate from it. This is her work. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, just like Adam of old, placed into the garden to tend and to keep it. That's your work. But also her witness. Her witness. The companions hearken to thy voice. The church has a voice. She has a voice. She is not to be silent. The church's call is to speak. Speak the truth. Speak the word of God. We all have our part in this, and we are to be about that business as opportunity arises. But here it speaks of the companions hearken to thy voice. It seems to indicate not just the world hearing her, but, but others who are in the garden, as it were, others who are part of the church, God's people enjoying fellowship with one another. Turn for a moment to Malachi, the end of your Old Testament to Malachi. There's a wonderful text here. I think I've pointed it out before, but it bears repeating. Malachi is a prophet in a dark day. I mean, it's really, it's not an easy time that he's living in. And there's much discouragement and much language of, of rebuke and so on and so forth. You can see from verse 14, ye have said, this is the kind of day he's living in, ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy, yea, they that work wickedness are set up, yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. That, that, that feels like everything's being reversed. The biblical ethics, morality is, is 
undermined. Feel a correlation? <laughs> Sense it in our day, do you? It's the same. It's very same. A day in which those that value truth and right feel themselves to be in a minority. And the wicked are having a field day, and everything seems to be going their way. How do you live in such a time? Verse 16. Then they that fear the Lord, this little remnant, those like you, feeling the darkness and oppression of your day, they that fear the Lord spake often one to another. They're talking. They're communing. It's like our text says, the companions hearken to thy voice. They hear you talking. They see what you're talking about. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that fear the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. There is a special place for those that talk one with another, companions in the garden, witnessing of God's goodness and mercy, talking. And when I say witness, I'm not just talking about evangelical witnessing to the world. I'm talking about all the expression. It's, it's speech seasoned with salt. It is words of encouragement and counsel as well as occasionally rebuke. It's words that build up and edify that that strengthen our souls, and we have to be in the presence of one another before that can even have the opportunity of occurring. So I say to you, beloved, invite that into your life. Don't make it just on the Lord's day. Be hospitable. Find a night or two in the month where you say, you know, let's, let's invite those brothers and sisters over. Let's have them in the home. And let's, let's, let's speak often one to another. And the Lord sees it and records it. Brings encouragement, doesn't it? Even our, even our, 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 what appears idle, though nothing is, but sanctified conversation with one another. He sees and delights in. He sees those that fear him and talk often one to another. This, this is a people then that, that are talking. The companions hearken to thy voice. I, we do, don't we? I love to hear the voice of a child of God in an encouraging, challenging, blessing way. But not only is her work and witness here, but there is her worship. Cause me to hear it. Here's the invitation. Don't just dwell in the church. Don't just talk among the church. Make sure I'm hearing. Make sure I'm hearing expressions of praise. Make sure that I am involved. Cause me to hear. Cause me to hear. I want to hear your voices. I want to, I want to hear what you have to say. In the morning, at noon, in the evening, I want to hear. I want praises. I want prayers. I want to hear it. I don't want to mute people. No. No, he has not made us a mute people. He has made us a people that can speak. Yes, he has put what? A new song in my mouth. 
Why? Even praise to our God. This caused me to hear it. So our Lord wants worship. This, this is part of what we are busy with. The call of Christ upon the church is to work, to witness, and to worship. Which brings us thirdly and finally then to waiting for the coming of Christ to the church. Waiting for the coming of Christ to the church. Here's her language. Verse 14, Make haste, my beloved. Be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. The language is kind of similar to chapter 2. If you go back there, chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart, and so on. So it's similar. Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. But the language here, if, if you think about it, what's the implication of verse 14? The implication is that there is a present separation between them. Make haste, my beloved. She's inviting him to make haste, I suggest, to move towards her. But, but they, they aren't together. That's the point. At this juncture, the last verse of the book gives implication of there being a separation. Now, why would that be? To what end? I suggest to you that the language of Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 14, is just like John's prayer, even so come, Lord Jesus. She is looking for him to come back. While she works, while she witnesses, while she worships, there is yet a coming arrival. And so it is for the church. We work here now for the advance of the kingdom of grace, but we long for the arrival of the kingdom of glory. And when we're praying, come, Lord. And there are many hindrances, many mountains. Yes, there are mountains. There are mountains that stand in the way, mountains that seem impossible. But he will come unhindered, like a row or a young heart upon the mountains, unhindered. It's no problem. No problem to him. Amidst all the things that are going on in the world, nothing will hinder the coming of Christ. Nothing will delay it. Nothing will cause it at any point for there to be a, a rearranging of the schedule. It's not going to happen. He's going to come at the exact moment and time. It doesn't matter what the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ. It doesn't matter. He will come unhindered. And we wait for him, don't we? Don't we? Yes, Titus 2. Can you remember the language of Titus? When our Lord, or whenever Paul writes there to the young servant, Titus, and he gives him an indication of living the Christian life. 
Verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. There's, there's a Christian life in a nutshell, right there. Titus 2, 11 through 14. And part of it isn't just our engagement with the world, but our looking for another. We are looking for another. We are looking for the blessed hope. The coming, the, the, the consummation of all our salvation promises. Because you haven't experienced it all yet, Christian. You haven't. You'll sit at communion and you'll rejoice in sins forgiven, won't you? Yes, you will. But you can't yet rejoice in sins gone. You're still fighting. You're still in this, this tabernacle, this old flesh. And you wrestle and fight every day because in your flesh dwelleth no good thing, but there's, there's a day coming. It's all going to be changed. And so you look for it. You look for it. You have hope. With the arrival of Jesus Christ, all things are going to be changed. So we wait for Him for who He is. Don't we? Make haste, my beloved. Make haste, my beloved. We wait for Him for who He is. He's my beloved. <laughs> He's mine. Praise God, He's mine. That's, that's, that's one of the most repetitious doctrines that undergird this whole book. The believer's union with Christ. I am His, and He is mine, and His banner over me is love. I belong to Him. He belongs to me, my beloved. And so He is, we love Him, we love Him for who He is. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the anointed one, isn't he? The one who came to save us from our sins. The one with all the beauty of, of who he is. Yes, there was a time when there was no beauty in him that we should desire him, but that changed. That changed. When our eyes were opened and we beheld the Lamb of God, and oh, what beauty. Oh, what beauty. Look at his perfections. I'm so imperfect. I need a perfect substitute. I need a perfect Redeemer. I need a perfect Savior. And there you see it. He says, in Him, it's there. My beloved is one impeccable in His nature. And you, you see all that He has done for you. He condescended and took flesh. He took flesh. God. Almighty God took flesh. Take the bread and remember it. He took flesh and suffered. Oh, how he suffered. Visage marred more than that of any man. You can't begin to fathom his suffering. He is my beloved. So we wait for him for who he is, but we also wait for him for what he will do. 
Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spice. Make, make way. Why, why, why do we anticipate this so much? Not just because of who he is, but what he will do. We want the end of sin. We do. We want the end of sin and all of its proponents. Those who glory in it. Those who exalt it. Those who legislate it. We want the end of it. So rivers of water should run down our eyes because they keep not thy law. On a day where we'll enter into that place wherein only dwells righteousness. Not that the fileth will enter in. He's going to bring it. Wait for him for what he will do. The end of all sin. The end of all sorrow and the reasons for it. Is your heart breaking today? Is it? Is your heart break? What's breaking your heart? If your heart's broken, you have all the more reason to say, make haste, my beloved. Make haste. I want the end of these sorrows. I want the end of death. And all the causes of it. It's the most unnatural thing in the world. Death. It is. We were not. We were not made to die. We were made to live. It is the fall. It is sin. It is the curse that brings this upon us. And we should hate it with every fiber of our being. We don't want death. Oh, there is, there is, there is a sense in which has been redeemed, to use that language by what Christ has done, that it now becomes the portal through which we enter into our glorious hope. But, but we take no delight in it. Do we? The departure of loved ones. The knowledge that we, we will experience them leaving us or we must leave them. So feeling, feeling all these things, sin, sorrow, death, we say, make haste, my beloved. Make haste. Come quickly. This is what we desire. The church... We are working, we are waiting. We live on, but desire Christ to come and make an end of all things and renovate this world, make it anew. And this is why we relate to the Beatitudes, I'll not turn to them. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek of the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's all an indication that things aren't all as they ought to be, and we know it. And our satisfaction is Christ. As he brings an end to our experience on this cursed world. Let's bow together in prayer. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. You're not saved. You, you don't know what John Newton was writing about. The solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. You can come to know it today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he's near. And he is near. He's here. And he will hear your cry. And if you need any help, be sure to speak to me at the close of our service today. God bless your word. And give us that grace to be busy. But give us grace also to, to look for the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Meet with us in this place. Give us a little of that world to come as we taste of Christ and all that He has done for us. Draw near in Jesus' name.